Turn the corner here for a second. Venetia is with us. Uh, Venetia Brenault. Did I say your last name right? Close enough. Uh, Venetia is from the Terminator Foundation. If you read the email this week, we have made a deep dive into a partnership with this incredible group that is really on the front lines of our city, working with uh, addiction and mental health, which of course are such prevalent challenges in our culture today. And as you know, you've heard my heart over these months uh, through the last year of our desire to jump in and run with some organizations, foundations, nonprofits that are doing doing it right here in our city where we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we can come alongside and say yes to what's already taking place and to help build strength and, and courage and family and support around these amazing adventures. So as of this past week or so, uh, these guys are now uh, here at CLA with us downstairs, uh, partnered with some of our offices, and we get to connect with them and pray with them. And it's, There's lots to share. We're actually going to go on a journey with you over the next year, uh, four, five, six talks that you're going to bring on a Sunday morning over this next year, sharing the journey of what God's doing. And we're going to start that today. Who's excited? This is... Can you tell I'm a little bit excited this morning? Because it's, it's so good to say yes to the things that you know the Lord has highlighted and divinely put together. Obviously through Aaron, our dear friend, who said these guys are doing what needs to be done in our city. And I don't want to give it away, but you're going to share a bit of what that is. And all through this year, we're going to walk this story out. And we're, I say this publicly, Venetia, we are committed to you and this local church and how we can help support financially with, uh, with people and, and helping to care for the, the, the volunteer work that you need, all of the fundraisers. So I am on your behalf saying yes to this. And I promise you by the end of today, you will want to say yes as well. Can we welcome Venetia to the stage this morning? Yeah. There is video and content and like all of that, but for the sake of time, we're going to save those things and we're going to post, post them on social media, on our website. So if you want to check out more of the visuals and some TV interviews that she's done, all of that will be blasted through our sites this week. Have fun. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Um, it's uh, a real pleasure to be here this morning. Um, Thank you for having me. Thank you, uh, CLA, and, and to the board and, and everyone here uh, that has agreed to have us here and have a, have us a part of your family and and just your just even what you guys are doing here. And so, um, yeah, this uh, I don't know if Aaron has. I, I know you guys probably all know Aaron very well. Um, but how this all started is I was looking for an assistant uh, for the foundation to help me personally um, kind of assist me because I, I needed support. And long story short, uh, my oldest daughter, Carissa, uh, knew Aaron, and they already had um, a relationship going on, had had for a few years, and Aaron was also nannying for my oldest daughter, Chris's four children. And kind of a long, long story short, but it just so happened that 
our paths crossed and next thing I know I'm meeting Erin at Denny's and to see if she would be able to take on the very part-time position we're hoping to make it full-time shortly but um, and then it all of these things just unraveled um, from from then and next thing I know I'm meeting Tim and we're talking about moving in here and it, 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 so it's been a it's been a real roller coaster of a ride the last few months and and I really 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 believe this is truly just the beginning um, and so I I'm I'm thrilled to be here this morning excited to be here with you guys and I'm uh, excited to share my story um, so I so I just I wanted to give a, a little bit of um, just a, a trigger warning um, that some of what I might share might be a little bit heavy. Um, it might even trigger some stuff within you. Uh, I'm, you know, going to be I'm going to be sharing my story and so um, and how this even all came about. Right? I I, I want to say quickly to you, it's so um, this morning even just as we we're worshiping and. You know, the songs that are playing and the, the words that we're singing, you know, about God and, you know, Jesus being able to come into those dark places and letting the light shine on the dark places and that God is all we need and, and you know, um, that he can get us through any situation. All, all, of the, all of those songs were so relevant and, you know that those songs are so much of what my life has been like up until this point and so singing those songs for me personally are they're not they're not just words i that that is god in action for me that's jesus in action for me in my life throughout my life and so yeah so hopefully for the next 40 minutes here i'm um I'm just going to share with you guys how things got started for me. And the, the first thing, you know, just like it says, owning, owning our story. And even, I can't remember what song it was, but one of those songs even kind of talk, talked about our story and just and, and sharing our story. And that, that, might, that might, sometimes I think that's easier said than done, right? To share your story. And then... A lot of times when it comes to sharing our story, we kind of, we, we very strategically decide what parts we're going to share and then what parts we're not going to share, right? Because I can't, I can only share certain parts with you and then even, I'll take it one step further and depending on the crowd of people, right, that we are about to share a few things of our story, we, we might filter it even more, right? And what I have personally found over the years is that, and again, we, it, we were singing about it this morning, but God knows my whole story. He knows it all. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows the ugly. He knows all of it. There's not one thing that I can censor for God. There's not one thing I could say, you know, you might want to close your eyes, Lord, this part here. You know what I mean? Maybe you come back tomorrow, give me about 24 hours, 
you know, you can touch base with me then, right? We don't get to do that with the Lord, right? And, and in all honesty, we shouldn't be doing that with each other either. And uh, so owning our story, owning, my, owning our story. So owning my story took me years, took me years to own my story because, because there was addiction in my story, because there was mental illness in my story, because there, there was a lot of ugliness in my story. And I didn't want to be judged. I didn't want you to think that I didn't have, you know, my stuff all together. I didn't want you to think that, oh, because this and this and this is in my story, that then it somehow disqualifies me, right? How, how many of us can relate to that? And so those are just some of the barriers that a lot of times we set up when we're owning our story, when we're sharing our story, when we're deciding how vulnerable I'm going to be in this relationship, in this Bible study, in this friend group, at worship, at work, with my spouse, with my partner, with my friends, with my family, with, with all of it. We decide. And so... It wasn't even really, I can tell you honestly, it wasn't even until just probably even just a few years ago that I fine, finally, after years, and I, I've been doing this for a long time now, but it wasn't until like two, three years ago that I finally stepped into and started to own the rest of my story. And, and there again, only God can do that. You know, if not, I know for me personally. And, and the other thing, too, I, I have found it in my journey in doing all of this is that God knows. He, he so knows where we're at. He so knows how much we can handle. He knows where we're at, you know, with our courage, with our bravery, because it takes courage and it takes bravery to, to share this stuff. Right? And so going way back, um, well, actually, before I go back, I'll just, so I, I'm, um, I'm a single parent. I've been on my own for over 14 years. I have four children. Um, they're all grown now, so I, I have four adults. And um, I ha also have seven uh, grandkids. And so my, um, so yeah, so I, I've been, I've been, I've been doing this for, for a while now. So, but, uh, so growing up, I grew up, like I mentioned, in an abusive home. Um, both my parents were alcoholics. Uh, my mom ended up having a, a mental illness. So years later, she ended up being diagnosed with, with schizophrenia. But be prior to that happening, um, there, there, there was just, there was a lot of turmoil in the house with her mental health as she started to literally break down. And uh, so our home life was, was very abusive, a lot of domestic violence. Some of my very first memories as a child growing up were of my father beating my mom, um, running to you know hotels in the middle of the night, like my mom coming home, being us kids, myself and my brother being woken up 
at I don't even know whatever times it was in, in the middle of the night and having to frantically run, you know, in our bare feet and pajamas, running to, you know, hotels and stuff like that because my father was coming home. And so the terror was ever present. It was just a constant temperature of terror. And so at, at about, I think I might have been like around five years old or something like that when my parents sobered up. And by that I mean they, they realized that they had a, a problem with drinking. They ended up going uh, to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, a 12-step support group for people that struggle with addiction. And, and that, that somewhat helped, but as... as uh, the more time you spend with me, the, the more you'll get to know that sometimes, you know, we can take away these substances, we can take away alcohol, we can take away drugs, but if we don't deal with the issues, if we don't dig up the stuff that's there, it, it's, it, it doesn't really get better, you're just not intoxicated now, right? And so that's sort of what happened in my family with my parents. They took away the alcohol, but my, the, you know, all of the abuse stayed. There just wasn't alcohol anymore. But the fighting never stopped. You know, the, the terror, the fear, all of the stuff that we lived in, the, the house that we lived in, nothing changed really except there, there wasn't alcohol anymore. And so at about seven years old, I met, I met Jesus. And I didn't, I didn't really grow up in like a Christian home per se, um, I, I vaguely remember um, my mom coming to the Lord. I remember going to church, like an alliance uh, church, kind of just like a few scattered times because our, our home life, you know, was, was the way it was and, and my parents were the way that they were. I don't think they ever really totally felt comfortable going to church, to tell you the truth. I, I think they felt like they were too broken and we were too dysfunctional and we were just too messed up to be one of those good, you know, church going folks, right? And so we didn't go that often. And as, as God would have it, um, he, there was a lady that came and picked me up one night. I don't even know how this was arranged or why, but um, clearly it was you know, just so that I could meet the Lord. And so that night uh, she picked me up and when she was dropping me off, um, before I jumped out of her pickup, I was about seven, she asked me, she was like, Venetia, would you like to have Jesus in your heart? And right away I was like, yes, I, I, would, I would love some company in here. So, because it's pretty lonely in here, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty terrified in here, and so I, 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 I was open to, to having this, you know, Jesus in, in my life and in my heart, and, and, and so we said the prayer, she asked me to repeat after her, you know, the prayer, and I, and I said the prayer, and I, in, in the moment that I asked Jesus into my heart, I had a supernatural encounter that's never left me. And that one supernatural encounter at seven years old stayed with me and held on to me and, and held on to my, the little faith that I had 
and carried me for years. And that encounter was just that Jesus was the name above all names. There was no other God. There was no one greater. There was no one more powerful, no one more loving. There was nothing. He was it. That Like the buck stops here. And this is the guy that you want to know. And, and that, I had that, not this knowledge, this supernatural knowledge and awareness of who he was. And it, that carried me. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, people will say, because around that same time, even though there had already been a lot of trauma up to about seven years old, when I, also when I was seven, I started to be, uh, I was, started to be sexually molested. And so that's sort of when also the sexual abuse entered um, my life from the time I was about seven uh, right up until I was around 12 or so. And it was so intense, like I, I was sexually abused by, um, by multiple people on my father's side of the family. So uncles, cousins, even distant relatives that I can't even remember their name. Um, one time I was molested even at the rink. Um, my dad used to play rec hockey you know, the old-timers rec hockey kind of thing, and I used to go to watch my dad to try to spend some time with him while he played hockey, and one night at the rink, the guy that ran the Zambini machine was cleaning the ice, asked me if I wanted to go for a ride on the big machine. I thought this was the greatest thing ever, and uh, he ended up molesting me in the room once we parked the big Zambini while my dad was changing in the change room, and I never said anything. All, all of those years of sexual abuse, I never said anything. I never told anyone. I never said anything. And a lot of that was shame. Shame. And, and, in, and in, in a really sad way, I, who, there was no one to tell. I couldn't really tell my mom and dad. There was already so much, you know, trauma and abuse there. They, they, they already weren't safe people for me. I didn't, obviously, wasn't able to articulate all of this. And so I held on to it all. And at about 12 years of age, I, I met a lady. Again, the Lord intervened in my life. I, when I look back through my life, I'm 49 years old. And when I look back through my life, I can see divine moments, like absolute supernatural divine encounters of the Lord where if I if I was to draw a line that is my life I could literally pinpoint at certain times when I was seven when I was 12 when I was 18 when I was 20, 22 like where just it was it was such a divine interruption in my life where God just showed up he made a way you know like only God can and this was one of those times at 12 and, and so at 12, again, um, my parents dropped me off at this lady's house. I didn't know who she was. I just remembered my parents were going away to some kind of a ret retreat or something, and I was getting dropped off. And so I got dropped off at this lady's house. Her name was B, and I'm 12. And wouldn't you know God would have it that that would be the weekend that I would tell this woman that I didn't even know about all of my abuse. And so I just shared it all. She, I found out 
later that weekend, she was also a Christian, like a spirit-filled, tongue-talking, Jesus, you know, Christian. And she, she was a warrior. She was an intercessor. And, and so it was that woman that I told everything to, all the abuse, all the trauma, all the beatings, I, everything. I told her everything. The first time I ever disclosed what had been my life of 12 years, and from, from that time on, um, I stayed and lived with B. From the, I never went back home after that. And so I ended up in the foster care system at 12. Bounced. I stayed with B for a while, and I, I can't even remember to tell you the truth why I ended up having to leave there. Um, but I eventually did, and then was just bounced around in different foster care and stuff like that. But I never went back home after that. I also, at the age of uh, 12, started drinking, which I've had people ask me too, you know, why, why would you drink, Venetia? Why would you drink? If you grew up in a home with alcoholic parents and you could see addiction, you've seen what alcohol could do to people and families and that, why would you start drinking at 12? Well, for starters, at 12, you don't think like that. You don't you, know, you don't contemplate those kind of questions. I had an older girlfriend, and she introduced me to beer. And, you know, at 12 years of age, when you're first starting to drink, it doesn't take very much either. I had zero alcohol tolerance. And so I had a couple of beers, and that, that was pretty much enough. But what I can tell you about that experience, and that... And, that actually never goes away. It doesn't matter if we're 12 or if we're 24 or if we're 44 or whatever. That first encounter with alcohol, and when I drank that beer, I felt better. There was some relief. So I wasn't thinking about, oh my goodness, if I start drinking this, I'm going to end up like my mom and dad. I wasn't thinking, that wasn't even a thought in my head. I was thinking, oh my gosh, it doesn't hurt as much. Oh my gosh, I feel lighter. It, it numbed, it dulled some of what had been going on. I felt lighter, I felt happy, I felt a little bit giddy, and it, that felt great. So to me, the alcohol, didn't actually even seem like a bad thing. It seemed like help. It seemed like something that actually took the, all the edges off. And so that, that became my, you could say, you know, my first introduction to alcohol, and then I just kept drinking. I wanted to, I wanted that feeling again. I wanted to feel better. I wanted to feel lighter. I wanted to feel a little bit giddy. Um, and so I, I, started, I started drinking and basically continued to drink. And, you know, it's, it's the same for the kids today, too. Alcohol and drugs are way easier to get than we might want to realize. And so being able to get alcohol at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years of age was no problem at all. There's lots of people willing to bootleg there's lots of friends that have parents that don't mind them taking their alcohol, right? So there's, 
there's definitely, it's easier. It's easier to access than we, than we might think. And so this, uh, this picture here, this running picture, um, that's me out, out in front there. And uh, I, I think I'm about like nine years old in that picture. That was the other thing, the other kind of a moment thing in my life where I would experience some freedom is, was running. And I, little did I know that 25 years later from that age, running would become a huge, um, a huge tool, a huge resource, just a huge thing that would help me overcome and get through so much. It would actually be one of the founding things for Terminator would be running, just my love for running. I also, I was telling Erin the other day, her and I were talking as we were, she was helping me prepare for this and, and get ready. I was, I was thinking about Jesus and, uh, you know, back when Jesus was on the earth. And the conclusion I came to is that I, I really think that Jesus was a, a long-distance marathon runner. He, I, I'm, I'm for real. Because, or, or at the very least, he, he loved trail running or something. Because you, you can't have put on the miles that that guy did you know, traveling, because that's what they did. They, they walked, right? And I, and I, for the life of me, I can't imagine that they only walked. Yeah, I can't imagine that uh, they're, they're, they didn't have some moments when him and his disciples didn't break into a little jog, you know? So, so I believe, I'm a big believer that, well, and even, even now today, um, running, because I started running again um, about 14 and a half years ago, just, I'll get into that story, but God comes with me every time I go running. Jesus is with me. The Holy Spirit's with me. I, he laces up his shoes and off we go. And those are some of the times that the Lord speaks to me the most is when I'm out running. And we're out running together. And he, it's like he's got me on, you know, there's no distractions. It's just me and him running. And so, yeah. So at 12, I started drinking foster care. And at 16, I, I met my, my first husband at 16. Um, like I said, I was living in foster care, but by that time at 16, it was more so just like um, they weren't really um, parenting me anymore at this point. It was more just I had a roof over my head. And so at 16, I met my first husband. At 18 uh, years of age, I ended up in AA, uh, just like my parents had. And I my relationship with my first husband also ended up being very abusive, uh, physically abusive, sexually abusive. It was almost like just a, a remake of just what my childhood had been, what I had witnessed in my parents' marriage. And now it was like I was living out that same, that same kind of relationship, that same scenario. 
And so um, one night, it was actually my dad that, um, because the police were called one night, we'd had a big fight and stuff like that, and the police were called. Um, I also wanted to mention, I grew up way up north, like Fort St. John, B.C., Dawson Creek, B.C., so way up north, little small town. Everyone knows everyone. And so my dad, at that, during that time of my life at 18, he was actually, he worked as an auxiliary cop. This was back when you were allowed to have auxiliary policemen. And so he was on shift that night. And so when I called the police um, for help, my dad was one of the police officers with, with the police that attended and came to our apartment. And so that night, my dad um, basically said to me, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to end up dead or in a mental institution. And I, and I knew that was true. I knew it was true. And so a couple of days later, I went to my first AA meeting. Um, and I was almost kicked out of AA, too, at that point. Um, that was a long time ago. And so back then, going to AA, it's not like how it is today where, you know, we're, we're actually trying to be a little bit more preventative when it comes to addiction and mental health. But back then, at 18, going to AA, they, they literally asked me to leave. It was this one old-timer. His name was Ray. And he ended up slamming his fist down on the table. And he was like, I vote she stays, so she stays. And, and I, was, I, was allow, I was allowed to stay. But they just assumed that at 18, what do you know about alcoholism? What do you know about being an alcoholic? Have you lost a marriage? Have you smashed up cars? Have you lost your business? Have you, you know, because that, that, was, that was usually the norm. That was how we um, measured alcoholism back then. Today we know way better, and hopefully we're doing better. Um, but back then, yeah, I was, so I was allowed to stay. Nine months later, I married my, my first husband. He was seven years older than I was. And honestly, I, I probably never should have married him. But I had figured my father had bought the dress, and so I kind of had, you know, I, I made my bed, so I better lie in it was how I felt about that. And I ended up having Carissa, is my, my first child, my first daughter. And, um, and she became my reason uh, to leave that marriage, that abusive marriage, at about 21 years. So we weren't married that long. Um, we got married just before I was 19, and then the marriage collapsed at 21 due to the abuse and everything. But I didn't, I didn't leave for myself because all, all of the abuse and all of that was just, all that had done for me was just reaffirm that I clearly deserved what I was getting and I wasn't really worth anything different. But I knew having Carissa, when I looked at my daughter, when I looked at my, my baby girl, I knew she was. She didn't deserve it. And so I, I remember feeling like I, I may never marry again. I, may, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I did not want to raise her with her thinking that this is love, this is marriage, this is, this is all you can expect. And so I left because of her. And, um, and so at 21, I left. And I, I remember this one night, I was, it was late. I was walking home and... I, was, I had stayed sober. I'm still in AA, doing AA, going to the meetings. It became like family for me. 
and uh, learned a lot about myself and, and the steps are amazing. I'm a big believer that I, I think everyone should do the steps, whether you're an alcoholic or not, they're great steps. And so one night I was walking home late at night and I remember looking up at the sky and I just, I had, there was so much condemnation. I felt like such a failure. You know, I failed at marriage. I was failing at life. I was, now I'm a single mother, like, you know, just wasted. I felt like a, wa a used up, wasted piece of skin, no good for nothing. I, I felt like the little knowledge I had of the Lord, I just thought I was probably disgusting to him too. And, and so I, this one night I was walking home and I just remembered crying and, and kind of praying and, you know, looking up at the stars. And I was like, if you can even remember who I am, if you can even look at me, if you can even say my name, can you help me find a way out of this? And I, I, I started going back to church after that. I started pursuing the Lord after he started pursuing me because we, we know that God, God never stops pursuing us. And even that cry of my heart really was not even from me. It was him. And so one of the, you know, again, it was a game changer for me. Walking with the Lord was and is and has been a game changer for me. And then, you know, I, I ended up going to school. I became a hairdresser, do, you know, doing the single parent thing. I'm back in church. And then I met my second husband. Um, and then we ended up getting married at 25. I met him at church. He played on the worship team. Uh, we attended the same, you know, Bible studies. We, you know, you're like the young adults. That's, you know, so we were the young adults. And so, yeah, at 25, we met and got married. And I believed that, like, this was it. Like, I was going to be married to this man till the day I died. I, you know, we, we prayed together. He was filled with the Spirit. Like, we both were filled with the Spirit. We were both loved being at church. It was, I, I didn't think it could get any better. I really just thought this was it and we were going to do life together and shortly so we got married in July I was 25 and then we started having a family so I got pregnant with my second daughter Eden and then we went on to have three more children together so we we had the four kids Carissa and he, so he had come into Carissa's life probably when she was between two and a half, three years old, something like that. And so he became her, like a stepfather to her. She, he was really all she knew for a dad. And we, you know, like any young married couple were, you know, times were tough in the beginning and we, uh, we were self-employed. And so we, we built a very successful um, construction company. We ended up moving from Kamloops, BC to here, Calgary, in 2000, and we, over, over the next few years, we became one of the largest, most successful 
uh, construction companies in all of Calgary. We were, you know, had a million dollar business. We were, you know, we worked on all the new million dollar homes out in Springbank and all of that. We were getting into land development, uh, renovations, like you name it. It was, you know, we lived up in Royal Oak in a beautiful six bedroom house. Um, and, and I, we really felt like we, we had made it. We were very involved in our church community, in our church family. Uh, Peter was on the worship team. Um, we were, you know, youth pastors. I was on women's ministry, involved with all the women's ministry stuff, prayer, intercession. Like, we were in there. You name it. Like, we were in there. We were at church every Sunday and several times during the week. Like, it felt like our life just couldn't get any better. And, and then um, things changed. And in February of um, just in February of I think that would have been like 2006 I started running again I had my two little boys at the time my girls were a little bit older and so I just would throw my boys they were like three and five at the time in the you know the big cougar wide stroller started running in February I don't know who starts running in February in Calgary but Clearly I did, and so started running in February, got the, you know, the boys all bundled up in their snowsuits and threw food in there and cars and trucks and toys, and, and off we'd go. And, and, and so a few short months later, um, in June, so on uh, May 31st of 2006, my husband and I, we had gone out for dinner, like, like we did a lot. Uh, we went to our favorite restaurant, was the Broken Plate uh, in the northwest part of Calgary. We used to dine there all the time. We would take colleagues there, business associates, all sorts of stuff. And so we went to the Broken Plate on May 31st, talking about our business, the company, where it was at. I, I love business, so I loved having these conversations and talking about the projections for the next five years, where we're going to go, what the business is going to do, talking about taking the kids to Disneyland and stuff like that. And then <clears throat> the next day, June 1st, was a Friday. Everything changed on June 1st, on that Friday. Um, it was like a tsunami had hit our house. And... I took, had taken the kids to school like I usually do, and I had gotten a call later that morning from my daughter, Carissa, to pick her up from school. She wasn't, she wasn't feeling good. She was 14 at the time. And so I went with the, the boys. <clears throat> they were in the back of the, the van in their car seats, and I went down to pick up Carissa from school, and she got into the van, and that's when she told me that my husband had been sexually abusing her and had been since she was about seven and a half years old. And so it literally felt like this picture. It was like our house in the cul-de-sac, you know, was the only one that was totally disseminated, destroyed, Everything was gone. All our hopes, all, our, all my hopes, all my dreams, all everything, it was gone. 
I couldn't believe what had happened. I couldn't believe that this had happened. This? This? After everything I had been through, God? This? After all the prayers, doing all the, you know, all the, you know, cutting off all the generational ties, praying all the prayers, reading the bondage breaker books, like you name it, I did it. If If there was a prayer to pray, I prayed it. If there was a book to read on breaking generational curses, I read it. And I I had done it all. And so for that to, and we're a Christian family. This is not supposed to happen to, we're Christians. Like, that night on Friday, we had a, a previously scheduled meeting with our pastors because we were pillars in our church. And so that night, instead of meeting our pastors to talk about where we're going as a church, I met with them alone and told them that my husband had been molesting my daughter. And again, you know, how I mentioned in the beginning about, you know, sharing our story, not wanting to share our story, only wanting to share certain parts of our story, Well, that all happened again. The last thing I wanted to do was share this part of my story. And the the shame was, the shame felt insurmountable. I felt guilty. I felt angry i felt i i want i felt like dying i wanted to die and then to to top it off you know our church didn't know how to deal with it and to be totally honest with you guys <clears throat> i don't think our church does know how to deal with a lot of this stuff and these are the stories that we we do need to be talking about whether it's like my story or not. But I will tell you that since sharing my story and since coming out publicly, it would blow your mind the amount of people that have reached out to me within the church with the same story. And so I ended up uh, starting to drink again. Um... We, we pressed charges. Um, you know, we, I tried to keep it all under wraps. I didn't let the school know where Carissa was attending. We, I told as few people as humanly possible because of the shame. Because I, I was so... The shame was so heavy, it's hard to even describe. And so, you know, the... The um, criminal proceedings started. Um, my husband at the time, he, he was able to afford one of the best criminal lawyers in all of Calgary. And so I was also of the mindset back then that somehow God could restore this. And, and that I, you know, I believed that I, I wanted to fight for my family still, fight for my marriage still 
not even fully being able to grasp how actually huge this was. And so, you know, and then so the, the criminal proceedings went on for about two years. Um, things just got progressively worse. And then my drinking started. And it, when, again, when I started drinking again at this time, I wasn't, you know, drinking, thinking I'm, I want to get drunk every day. I just started having a, one glass of wine at about 9 o'clock at night after the kids went to bed just to take the edge off from the day, just to help me sleep. And that just progressed slowly. You know, slowly one glass of wine became two. But to me, this was still very justifiable. It's wine. It's, I mean, this is, it doesn't get more elegant than this, right? I'm a wine connoisseur now. You know, and so, and then before I knew it, my drinking, after a few years, had totally taken over my life. And I wasn't waiting till 9 o'clock anymore after the kids were in bed. Now I was drinking at 5. I was drinking right after work. And so eventually, um, about six years later, I went back to AA. So in 2013, I sobered up um, for the final time. And I, I've been sober ever since. Um, and so that sort of, so going through that, so I sobered up in, in 2013. Basically, I kind of, I equated to like, I sobered up just in time to watch my second oldest daughter start on the road of addiction. And so I kind of, um, I sort of equate this to like, you know, the Chernobyl, right? How that devastation, it happened one, one day that happened, but it's, it's gone on for years and years and years, right? The effect of that one trauma, that one natural, not natural disaster, but that one disaster happening, and it's just, it's, gone, it's impacted us forever, right? That's, a lot of times, the traumas that we experience can impact us for a long time. It doesn't mean that we can't experience healing as we're going through it, but it also means that everyone that is a part of that also experiences trauma. And we all deal with trauma differently. We all react differently. We all respond differently. We all cope differently. And so basically that was what was happening in my family. And so that was, so watching my daughter to start to go down that road, that was, it was during that time when I came sort of face-to-face -face with our healthcare system, our police, all of our frontline workers and stuff like that, just the shame and the stigma associated with addiction and mental health and these kinds of stories, these kinds of traumas, um, I just thought that I got angry. I got angry at the way that Eden was being treated, you know, and I just thought, she sh why should she be ashamed? She has nothing to be ashamed of. And so that was literally the birth of Terminator. And so it was during that time, because as I started to come out with my story, I, I started to get in, be surrounded by other families that also started coming forward with their stories and their youth and their kids struggling with addiction and them not knowing what to do and feeling like bad parents and where did I go wrong and, and, you know, and wanting to hide in shame too. And that's where the Terminator run for youth addiction awareness started. It started with sharing, sharing stories. 
And so after the run happened for a couple of years, um, long story short, but Eden, Eden, through her addiction, she ended up on the street. She, was, uh, she became addicted to heroin and fentanyl. Uh, it ended up being years of a journey with her. Um, I won't get into all of that right now with you, but um, it was horrible. It was horrific. I thought for sure I was going to bury her. And so about two years into the run, I started training for uh, my first half Ironman. My running, my love for running kind of led me to want to do this bucket list dream thing of mine that I'd had since my 20s. And during one of the worst times of my life with my daughter being out on the street, I thought, you know, the training might be a good distraction. And so I trained in about three and a half months for my first half Ironman. And in doing that, that's where the program that is now today, Terminator, um, was birthed from, was out of my own experience. And what God even did with me in that experience while training, seeing what you know, our bodies can do, what our minds can do, like all of this stuff. God's in all of it. And so, you know, the running, my, the running it was, has, has and is a gift from God. And just seeing the transformation in my own life, I thought if my life could be transformed like this, what, what could this possibly do for our youth and young adults today that are struggling with drugs and alcohol and just feeling like they're not enough? And so that's hope. That gives us hope. That gives us hope because I don't know how familiar you guys are with the landscape of addiction, of stigma. You know, this generation is more lost than they've ever been. We're losing kids and youth at a rampant rate. We have more youth homelessness in Canada than ever before. And if we don't start to do something different, we're going to lose like hundreds of thousands of kids. And so Terminator is about showing them that they're not a lost cause. They're not just a junkie. They're not a waste of skin. That it doesn't matter where they came from. It doesn't matter, you know, what their family background is. It does, none of that matters. That if they put up their hand and they're willing to want to train with us, then we'll, we'll train with them. I don't care if they're 24 hours sober or two weeks sober, two months sober. It doesn't matter. And I, I also firmly believe that if, if, if these kids are above ground, there's hope. Because I know with my daughter Eden, who is now four and a half years in long-term recovery, there was a time that I, literally, I was planning her funeral. Because it looked hopeless. But I, if, if they're breathing, there is hope. It doesn't matter to me how bad the addiction is, how chronic it is, how bad the mental health is. If they're, if they're living, if they're alive, if they're breathing, there's hope. And so that is, that is Terminator. Um, I, I ended up talking way longer than I thought I would, so I, I apologize. Um, but yeah, I just um, we, have, we are going to have more information at the back. Uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, feel free to talk to Aaron, talk to, to Pastor Tim. 
and we can get you more information. Um, before I leave, before I, I step down, I just want to say when I, when I was running this morning, thinking about today, thinking about this morning, there was a couple of things that the Lord put on my heart while I was out running. And one was that he just reminded me that first, I'm his mouthpiece. And so I, I'm really grateful to be the Lord's mouthpiece. And, but he also reminded me that, you know, when we share our stories, when I share my story, it gives other people permission to come forward and to share their story. It helps to set the captives free. Because whether we're inside a church building or not, we're usually always, there's something that we're struggling with or we know someone that's struggling. And we have to be willing to have these hard conversations. And so I, I just really want to encourage you that if you are struggling, if you are struggling with addiction, with mental health, or with any kind of abuse or pain or anything, that you would reach out. Like today, don't wait. I also really felt the Lord said that some of you, or maybe just one of you, have been putting out like an SOS, an SOS, and God's heard your SOS, and, and now is your time. Now is the time to come forward. And there is no shame. There's no story that's too ugly. There's no person that's too far gone. And so I, I really appreciate you guys just, um, you know, being here today, listening. I know some of this stuff is hard and it's heavy. Um, but I, I do want to tell you that I, after this service, I'm going to celebrate my, my daughter is getting married next weekend. And so we're having her bridal shower today at my house. And so, you know, the beauty for ashes, that is, God really does that. And so my life and my, my story is that. And I, and I want that for you too. So thank you.